At this time, I'm going to get ready to read the scripture. Um, and as I pull that up, by the way, scripture reading is from John 4 today. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, the words will all be on, also be on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, Cindy's going to be bringing today's message. So excited to hear what the Lord's put on, on her heart. Um, so again, the scripture reading today is going to be from John 4, verses 1 through 26 and 39 through 42. See if I can do this one handed. All right, here we go. And the band, you're, you're welcome to take your seats if you guys want. Or... Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who, who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob well, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and, uh, with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't, be, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands, or you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Down in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen. Amen. Our generation, our society, and our culture, we love the idea of a good disruption, don't we? Like a, a breakthrough innovation or some new way of doing things that completely disrupts the status quo or an industry altogether. Objects and services that all of us use every day were all major disruptors in their time, right? The iPhone, Netflix, 
Spotify, changing the way that we communicate, changing the way that we interact with media and music. Or one of my personal favorite disruptor stories, Warby Parker. You guys know Warby Parker? Yes, the direct-to-consumer eyeglass company, super fashionable. I super, I ran into them like maybe a decade ago at an e-commerce conference uh, when they were just gaining momentum as a company. And I just found them and their model like super fascinating. It was really brilliant, actually. They took on a behemoth of an industry, right? Uh, multiple layers of add-on costs that result in glasses being incredibly expensive by the time you get them from your optometrist's office. And they simplified the delivery through attractive design and an online try-on model, right? They'll send you five pairs to try on at home, and then you send it back, cutting out third-party physical stores and the fashion brand middlemen in one fell swoop, making glasses super accessible at less than $100, including the lenses, and then they're fashionable, too. I promise I'm not advertising this company. I just think they're really brilliant, and I wear their glasses. I really like them. So Disruption, it's really fun for us to talk about, right? New things, and we all see the brilliance of each new way of doing things, but usually after the fact. In the moment, the disruptor is typically uncomfortable, challenging to the status quo, not easy to see, and gets pushed against before it gains momentum. This concept is actually foundational to our vision and who we are as a church here at Current. It's very easy for us to see that there is a fast running current here in the Silicon Valley to find our worth based on resume, on what we've achieved, on what we can do, and how much other, other people might recognize what we've achieved and what we can do. These are not necessarily bad things. God wants us to use our gifts to join him in the renewal of this world, including in the marketplace. Faith and work is incredibly important. And yet, we can get so stuck in a vicious cycle of busyness and achieving and busyness and achieving the next big thing that somehow along the way, we might just lose perspective on what it's all for. We exist as a community intentionally in this very successful area because we believe that Jesus offers a new and different current a disrupting healing current, if you will, one of living water, where we find our ultimate, our, our ultimate purpose, our acceptance, and our value in him, such that it frees us to do our work, to prioritize our time and our relationships right, with our eyes on eternity. Jesus was the ultimate disrupting agent for our eternal good and also for society's good 2,000 years ago, and he continues to be today. If we look through the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, we see instance after instance of him disrupting relational expectations, societal norms, in order to create healing, both physically and spiritually. Today we start a new series called Restoring Relationship, talking about all the ways we engage with one another at home, at work, in our broader community. It goes without saying that for two years, our work and life rhythms have not been normal, especially around how we relate with one another. We have not been engaging the way that we were designed to live, connected and committed to one another. In 2019, 
someone that stayed home in their pajamas, watching Netflix, doing all their work from home, ordering everything off of delivery services, only engaging with people through Zoom and social media, might have been seen as unusual or perhaps actually in need of some intervention, right? But that was all of us for a really long time. We aren't intended to live in such an isolated way. And whether pandemic rhythms felt really comfortable or uncomfortable to us, there's no question that they were formational to us in some ways. We've developed habits, right? And probably more than we maybe have stopped to realize uh, the impact of up until this point. In varying degrees over the last two years, we've also all experienced relational changes at home, at work, in friendships both new and long held. Some gains, of course, there's more closeness in some cases. I like to think that uh, this generation of siblings might have a unique bond based on how much extra time they've spent together at home. And we've seen definitely some relationships, even here at Current, take some big steps forward during the pandemic, getting married, having children, right? But there's also been an overwhelming amount of relational loss. Surveys have shown that more than half of Americans feel like they lost touch with some friends during the pandemic. And 9% said they felt like they lost touch with most of their friends. On top of that, social scientists say that the dynamics of like kind of less interpersonal interaction, right, less hanging out together and isolation have made us, quote, hypervigilant to social threats, making it far more likely to feel left out, more sensitive to feeling slighted, and generally just kind of out of practice in navigating net conflict, interpersonal conflict. So we come to a passage today that in many ways is a masterclass from Jesus in helping us identify and restore places where we might be experiencing some relational dryness or pain. We're going to look at a few different kinds of relational tension or brokenness highlighted by this passage and one by one also examine how Jesus disrupts these expectations to create healing. I want to encourage all of us, as we start to study this passage today, to hold on any judgment for one another, and maybe especially for ourselves. If you're anything like me, let's uh, take a minute to invite the critical voice inside to take a time out for the next 20 minutes and give our souls room to honestly consider and explore how the Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning through an encounter that Jesus is having with a Samaritan woman on his journey from Jerusalem to Galilee. Let's say a prayer, and then we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that your word is living and active and it speaks to us today in such relevant ways. Lord, we invite you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come, to open our hearts, to allow us to discern what it is that you want to invite us into today, how you want to invite us to be a part of restoration. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Interestingly, this passage actually begins with some relational tension even before Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. We're told that the whole reason Jesus is traveling through Samaria is the religious leaders or the Pharisees are starting to notice his growing popularity. They're seeing that his disciples are baptizing a lot of people and they're maybe starting to feel some competitiveness, some insecurity, some distrust. Jesus senses this and he chooses to leave 
leave Judea and go home for a while to kind of diffuse the situation because he knows it's not yet time for him to go to the cross. As he travels, we're told in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria. This had to is very interesting, and it's most easily explained by verse 9, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Samaria was considered in that day to be a very undesirable place, a hodgepodge racially and religiously made up of the lowest classes of society that had been left there when the Babylonians took over a half century before. The Jews not only saw Samaritans as ritually unclean, the animosity between these two nations and people groups was so strong that historians label it deadly. The Jews considered Samaritans to be cursed and not to be associated with any way, definitely not to be spoken to and for sure not to be sharing any food or drink. Pharisees or very rigid Jews would actually travel an extra week when going from Jerusalem to Galilee so that they could completely circumvent Samaria. So it was extremely disruptive to societal expectations, not only for Jesus to be there, but to have this intimate of an interaction with a Samaritan woman and then not only a Samaritan, but a woman. This was 2,000 years ago when Jewish law said one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. It was literally forbidden for him to greet a woman on the street. As we've seen in verse 6, Jesus has sat down by a well, exhausted, about a half hour away from this town called Sychar. And his disciples have gone into town to buy food, probably passing this woman on their way, undoubtedly completely avoiding her. She probably even stepped off the road for them, right? So then she arrives at the well to draw water, and Jesus talks to her, asks her for a drink of water, which is completely unexpected based on social norms and probably very confusing confusing to her. He engages her with unexpected kindness. And we learn that this woman has had multiple relationships. She's had five marriages and is now in a relationship where they are not married. And it doesn't take much to see that she probably carries with her a lot of relational pain, perhaps feelings of being unwanted or undesirable, undeserving of real lasting love. There are so many layers to her expectation that Jesus would never talk to her, much less ask to share her water cup. Not only the societal norms based on their ethnic and gender differences, but also deeper pain based on patterns of relational loss and failure. Jesus disrupts her surprise and the natural relational tension from their very different backgrounds by inviting her to serve him. Verse 7, will you give me a drink? Don't miss this. The son of God who can multiply a couple of fish and loaves of bread to feed thousands of people chooses to make contact with this woman whose society has deemed unworthy for him to even greet on the street by expressing his personal need. He leans into his humanity, his vulnerability, his personal weakness, physical weakness to disrupt the barriers between them, where he would naturally have held every upper hand. I love this so much. Have you noticed that one of the easiest ways to break down relational barriers and tensions between people is to ask for their help? It dignifies the other party in a way that not much else can. It kind of reminds me of when a kid's eyes will light up in delight and surprise sometimes when you ask them for some help. Try it if you're here serving on Sunday mornings. There's a lot of them running around. It's pretty fun to ask them for some help. 
It's why the most effective ministries to marginalized neighbors offer work. I really hope we can go back to serve with our partners in person at, we hope, in East Palo Alto soon here. Because it's clear when we're there how effective it is that they all have responsibilities in the shelter's upkeep. They're also given help with their resumes. We've had the opportunity in the past to provide interview clothes because a key focus of the ministry is also helping them to find work. The dignity of work makes the healing process more effective. When Caleb was a toddler, we lived in North Sunnyvale, and we had these neighbors that David and I really wanted to get to know. They were right next door. And we spent all this effort trying to get to know them, but I just really could not get under a kind of superficial conversation and niceties with this friend, no matter what I tried. And then came this ridiculous week when I just had like the worst week ever and I ended up having to ask her for a lot of help. I mean, it was really ridiculous. We were away at a retreat and Caleb got sick and I had to come home and grab a ride home, get home all the way. It's really late. I have like a one-year-old and I realized I don't have a key to the house. And so I'm like knocking on her door and I have to ask her help at this really inconvenient hour to feed my snot-faced kid. And then I'm calling the locksmith and we finally get inside. And the next day, you know, our washer dryer breaks in this really like disgusting way. I'm not even going to go into the details. So I'm knocking on her door again. And it just was all super mortifying. Right? Like, I would never want to live it over again. But the very next week, literally, all of these things start pouring out in conversation. She tells me about pregnancy loss. She tells me about the deep grief around it. She tells me about her parental issues, all this stuff just coming out. This neighbor, I had spent so much time trying to engage on my own strength, thinking that the most important thing was what I had to offer, actually needed me to ask her for some help in order to add some vulnerability to our relationship. It's also why we see being portable here as a gift. We just highlighted the ops team this morning. We are a setup and teardown operation, and it is an opportunity for every person, every one of us here, to be invited into the mission in a critical way, wherever we are on our spiritual journey. We literally need you. Church on Sunday mornings cannot happen without you. Godet, a theologian, writes, he is not unaware that the way to gain a soul is often to ask a service of it. We invite you unabashedly to serve with us here at Current because we believe that serving together breaks down barriers and it is the secret sauce to real community. And by the way, in a month, we are going to have another big volunteer appreciation. So if you're not serving on a team, here's your chance. The connection card today is your friend. That's my very uh, unabashed aside. We also see that Jesus is really good at code switching. Sometimes our relational tensions have undercurrents built on socio-political animosity or cultural differences. It is entirely possible for us to deeply value diversity and still struggle to understand where our friends or coworkers are coming from based on a different background. It's especially stark to examine this conversation with the woman at the well in contrast with the one Jesus has just had with Nicodemus one chapter before this. Nicodemus is a Jewish teacher of the law and couldn't have been more of this woman's polar opposite in society. In both conversations, Jesus uses the concept of water to demonstrate spiritual blessing, but he talks to them in totally different ways. 
After Jesus asks this woman for a drink, he tells her about something called living water, verse 10, knowing that she goes to the well every day. And the idea of never having to be thirsty again would be very attractive and you know, kind of understandable to her. When she doesn't immediately understand or connect what he's offering and interprets it literally as a physical spring of water helping to address her physical thirst, he asks a disruptive and confrontational question gently about her life and shows that he supernaturally knows a lot about her. He reveals to her that he knows she not only experiences physical thirst, but relational thirst as well. Going back up to verses six and seven, this woman comes to draw water alone at noon. This is very unusual in this time and place. The well is at least a half mile outside of the village and the climate is very hot. It would have been customary for women to come early in the morning when it was cooler and to come together in a group for safety and companionship. She was likely an outcast among a village of outcasts, relationally isolated and unloved in a relational drought. Verse 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In one fell swoop, Jesus engages her relational dryness, tells her he knows about her past, and loves her with the offer of eternal life. He treats her with dignity, as someone with a unique story, with her own personal longings. And while he doesn't turn a blind eye to the brokenness in her life, he shows her that she is both fully known and truly loved. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Pastor Tim Keller. It is completely and entirely disruptive to this woman's understanding of the world that Jesus knows everything about her and yet chooses to lovingly engage her with this offer of eternal life. When she finally starts to understand that they are having a spiritual dialogue and she shares her folk religion understanding that there is a Messiah, a Savior coming, he says to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus chooses the outcast among outcasts to be the first among her village to receive the best news ever. It is beautifully disruptive and immediately healing. How do we see that this is healing? This woman leaves her water jar, goes back to town, and tells everybody to come and see Jesus, this man who told her all that she ever did. The social outcast who avoids other people in something even like fetching water runs back into town, directly engages those who ostracize her, drawing attention to the parts of her life that caused her to be ostracized in the first place because she feels so secure and overwhelmed from this interaction with Jesus that shame is not even on her mind. To be fully known and truly loved is deeply healing. 
Why is this the case? The answer is at the core of what we believe as followers of Jesus. That as humans, we try to solve our own problems, but we can't. We see all the way back to the first book of the Bible that our most common human response to sin is to hide and to blame. When we see brokenness in our own lives, our most common response is to hide and to blame. Think about kids. What most commonly happens when they eat or touch or break something that they aren't supposed to, right? They try to hide it or they blame their brother, sister, dog, like anything else that they can point to. It's like every episode of Full House, which we have nostalgically been watching with our kids during the pandemic. DJ hiding that she snuck out to a party. Stephanie hiding DJ's sweater that she somehow accidentally ruined. Michelle hiding that she ate a cookie, that she broke something she wasn't supposed to touch et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our gut response is to hide something if we are ashamed. It gets much deeper than Full House, of course. We all have desires, fears, thoughts, habits that we believe would make us unworthy, unlovable, unvaluable if others knew about them. That's why it's so refreshing and disruptive to our attempts to save ourselves. When scripture tells us in so many places that we are fully known and truly loved by God. This could be a whole other message, but let's just take a look at some of what scripture says. Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Does it blow your mind that the God of the universe knows every word before you speak it, every action that you make, every thought that you think? It's literally impossible for any human to know every single thing about us. I heard a pastor named John Piper say once that even though he wants there to be someone that knows everything about him, the reality is that there are thousands of things about his life and experiences that no one knows, not even his wife, because it's impossible to fully debrief everything to another person. We'd have to be debriefing 24-7, and even then, I'm not sure we could really cover it, all of it, right? Now, this doesn't mean that sharing our lives with other people is not important. It's pretty important. There are, there are at least a few people in our lives that know us super intimately who have permission to ask us about all the good things and also the things that we struggle with. But it's literally impossible for someone to know all your thoughts, feelings, desires, interactions, bajillions of data points that reveal our imperfections daily and our greatest fears. Jesus knows all of these. He is familiar with all our ways, beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. And he truly loves us. When we receive his gift of dying on the cross and rising again on the third day, what we just sang about this morning, what we celebrated joyfully last week, we are immediately and completely covered, safe for eternity in God's love, just like this woman at the well. If you've never received this gift of love before, you can do that right now, today. We want to invite you to pray, yes, Jesus, I understand that I have brokenness in my life. And you are the path. You are the way. And it's because you went to the cross that I am fully known and truly loved. 
We can have this confidence even this morning, and we invite you to pray this prayer, to receive this gift of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. If you pray the prayer, we would love to know about it. You can put something on your connection card today, hand it in right after the message, so we can follow up with resources to help you as you start your journey with Jesus. And we would love for the opportunity to pray for you. Now, here's the challenging part. What does application of our study today look like? We've seen how Jesus disrupts relational hurt, societal expectations, relational dryness, and how healing it is that we know we are fully known and truly loved. We will never be able to know and love people the way that God does. But we all have opportunities to take a couple of cues from Jesus and the Samaritan woman to restore relationship in our lives and to be aware of the societal patterns that could use some disrupting in our generation. There's a really interesting article, maybe you've seen it, came out in the Atlantic earlier this month titled, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. It's not just a phase. Among many other things, the author Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist, talks about the ways that the digital landscape has impacted society over the last decade, one of which is teaching us to spend more time performing to impress one another in ways that align with our personal brand online and less time actually connecting with one another. In other words, digital life and the persona that is reflected on our various profile pages has been moving society in the opposite direction of relationships where we are fully known. Life with Twitter has also taught us to care about what creates the most engagement online, which data studies show are generally posts that trigger emotion, primarily anger at groups unlike our own. These dynamics have encouraged our society to become insanely reactive, angry, and really mean. A Twitter engineer who was involved in the development of the retweet button said he later regretted it because it made Twitter a nastier place and drew the analogy that it was like giving a four-year-old a loaded gun. Haight writes in his article that a mean tweet doesn't kill anyone. It's more a dart than a bullet, causing pain but not fatalities. But billions of dark guns are now out there, and we've been shooting at each other ever since. In many ways, it shouldn't be surprising to us what happened at the Oscars this year. We have learned that it's OK to immediately slap each other online if we don't like something that's said. Why not take it one step further and slap one another in person, too? So digital life is not only moving society away from relationships where we are fully known, it is also moving in direct opposition to resolving conflict in loving, patient ways. And of course, these dynamics working against being known and loved have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. As a quick aside, if you're thinking, well, I don't do social media, so she's not talking to me, or if you're thinking, I guess the application is just to go cancel all my social media accounts, I would gently push back on both those thoughts. Only you can discern how and where to engage online, but there's no question that digital social networks are here to stay. They are a part of our society's infrastructure. Many of our church family actually work at these companies and have opportunities to influence their direction. Based on what we've seen in the message today, Jesus didn't just engage, disengage from the messy parts of society he was in. He disrupted them. 
with living water. And he helped his disciples learn to navigate the messy stuff, to hold out life. With all this in mind, what might it look like for us to partner with God to restore relationship in the different spheres that he's placed us in, at home, at work, in our broader community? Let's grab some ideas from this passage that we've studied today. One idea might be to initiate in person. Perhaps a takeaway is to spend time with someone you aren't close to or haven't been close to in the way that you used to be. Maybe it's someone that you primarily engage with online. Jesus asked this woman he did not know and with whom he had little natural connection for some water, a pretty intimate act. The isolating rhythms of the pandemic have made it totally justifiable for us to only do things like this with a small bubble, with our families and with our small groups of friends. Literally, we were told to form social bubbles and be insular. Even those of us that are naturally social have probably hung out with more of the same people, at least more so than we used to. Or perhaps some of our relationships are based more about trading likes and an occasional DM, but haven't really moved to any in-person conversation. Some questions to get us thinking this morning. Who is someone that you used to spend time with before 2020, but haven't seen for a long time? Can you initiate a get-together this week? Who's someone new to one of your spheres of life? A neighbor, a coworker, someone in your current group who you could initiate to spend some time getting to know in person? A second idea might be to examine our rhythms and patterns and ask, is there actually room for a relationship? Where in your life might you need to disrupt a pattern to create space? For relationship, or where can you slow your role when something or someone confuses or upsets you in relationship? We can't fully know and truly love people to the degree that Jesus does, but we can work on giving people benefit of the doubt. Interestingly, the disciples often mirror to us ways that we're prone to messing up, right? But in this passage, they effectively model waiting a beat when they get back from buying food and see that Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, even though the observation is incredibly confusing to them. We also see in the dialogue between Jesus and this woman that even with an amazing communicator like Jesus, it can take several passes to get to understanding and to build a deeper relationship. Given the highly reactive and deeply critical space that society has entered over the last several years, one of the most disruptive and restorative things that we can choose in our everyday relationship is to manage our own reactivity and way to be before responding. If you feel a friend or a loved one regularly misunderstands you or offends you with something they say, or there's a decision or an organizational change at work that's frustrating or you disagree with, a restorative response might be to step away for a minute to discern. Take a beat to listen or process the situation. Sleep on it before sending the email, the Slack message, or having the conversation. Direct communication and crucial conversations are so important. But we have an opportunity to disrupt patterns of brokenness by working on our own reactivity before proceeding and to create space for prioritizing the relationship. A third idea might be to practice meaningful vulnerability. 
It is beautiful and redemptive that the brokenness of this woman's past, a story that was deeply shameful for her, causing her to shy away from everyday interactions with her neighbors, becomes literally the same thing she uses to vulnerably proclaim Jesus with personal authority to those same neighbors. Vulnerability is unbelievably powerful in restoring relationship. It builds empathy over shared experience. It naturally creates space for us to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. And it allows us to take steps, imperfect as they may be, toward the formation of a known and loved community. I had a mentor in college, the leader of our large fellowship, that I really struggled to feel close to. For the first three years of college, I thought she just might not like me as much as other girls. I felt this barrier in our relationship, like the lighthearted, joking relationship she had with so many others wasn't for me. Instead, I often felt her lightly cautioning me about aspects of my personality or how I did things. For the longest time, I was too proud um, to ask about it, and I didn't have the maturity to have a conversation. Until late in my junior year, when she met up with me to invite me into a leadership uh, uh, role in my senior year, and somehow one thing led to another, I ended up awkwardly telling her how I felt. I'll never forget how she responded. Tears welled up, and she turned to her Bible, Psalm 141, reading to me verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, that is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, that is oil on my head. She proceeded to tell me that she saw so much of herself in me and had since my freshman year and was naturally more critical of me than others because of how critical she is of herself. We shed more tears, and it forever changed my understanding of authority and vulnerability in light of the gospel. I still don't do this as well as I would like to, but I know that I desire to be the kind leader, mother, wife, friend who listens when someone feels hurt by my actions or my words and will vulnerably say, let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. It is oil on my head. Because it's how Jesus operated. It is the primary way he disrupted the brokenness of this world in each of our lives. By taking the pain of the world onto his own body and making himself vulnerable to the cross, disrupting the ultimate effects of sin in our lives and restoring a path to eternal life. We love the idea of disruption, but we can forget that by its nature, it is risky and sacrificial. In our own small way, in the relationships and spaces we have been placed in, we also have opportunity to be vulnerable and to sacrifice for the sake of restoring relationship. Because today's passage doesn't stop at this woman's own healing. It says that, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And Jesus stayed in Samaria two more days, teaching them, and many more believed because of his word. 
The healing of one person has the opportunity to lead to the restoration of many. We've been saying over the last year that community is healing, and it is not just something to say. It's based in scripture, like this woman who became a restoring ripple effect of living water into her broken community. We too have opportunity to be a vulnerable, restoring presence in the spaces where we are placed such that relationship is restored, not just for us, but for many around us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for living water. Thank you so much for coming to restore relationship with you. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us today, now, this week, to show us how we can initiate, how we can examine, and how we can be a part, a vulnerable part, of restoring relationship around us. Would you allow us to partner with you? Would you allow us to be a part of your work? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.